And, uh, and so now we're going to be looking at another area that um, can be a touchy subject when it comes to, um, to the church, when it comes to Christians, because it has had a, a bit of a um, social redefining, you might say, um, a generational redefining. Uh, the, there has been many different generations who have gone through different phases of um, definition concerning what we're talking about tonight. You're like, what are you talking about, preacher? What are you getting to? I'm getting there. This, uh, this word of worship, all right? The word worship. Now, I'll just preface everything with, a, a statement that I'll build on in a minute. But worship of the Lord is clearly defined in this book. True, godly worship doesn't need extra explanation or new ideas. We'll get to some of that here in a minute. Um, or redefining by the socially uh, not just acceptable, but um, the socially in mindset of the day. Uh, you, have you noticed that man's ideas of what's in and what's popular seems to fluctuate with the times? Um, how many of y'all, just out of curiosity, because I wasn't alive back then, so I can't be part of this, but how many of you individuals in here remember the outfits of the 60s? How many of y'all had bell-bottoms? Yeah, old, old Navy had bell-bottoms. Looked like the top half of the pants shrunk and the bottom half just flared out. Uh, how, how many of y'all remember the, the, the real huge, massive collars on the shirts that came way down? How about this? In preachers, okay? Preachers. How many, how many of the preachers or people in here that, uh, that we, we call dress clothes? Uh, how many of y'all remember the thick, heavy ties where you didn't have a neck. You had a, you had a, a knot up here, you know, covering your entire neck. Um, well, what got me was uh, growing up, we, we would look for ties as kids and everything. And I could not believe, I mean, they had the bottom of the tie was like that wide. I mean, what was this, clown outfits or something? And, and I could but listen, was that not the fashion of the day? Give it enough time, it'll come back. Why? Because everything tends to rotate. Uh, and, and, you know, the generation, when it comes back, well, they'll be the first ones to have ever come up with that. Uh, you know, kids, it's like, hey, look what we came up with. Like, no, no. We were doing that, and it looked a lot better on us way back in the day. But things change, right? Fads change. Definitions of things can be changed. However, when you're dealing with Bible principles and Bible teaching, what God has laid out, there are some things that we ought to take what God has taught and not try to adjust it to an acceptable version of the times. There are some things that just need to be held sacred because God gave us what it is, gave us his definition and his description of how it works in his eyes. And Worship is one of those things that is found in God's word and is fully defined in God's word and clear. And so, again, 
it can be a touchy subject for today, and we'll, we won't get to it tonight, but um, Lord willing, next Sunday night, we'll be able to deal with the second part of this, and, uh, and it's going to be dealing with the, the flesh and emotion side of what happens a lot of time in the quote-unquote worship side of things in modern-day mentality of worship. And we're going to deal with how emotions get mixed in and how that's wrong. But tonight, I'm not going to get all into that tonight. Mostly, I'm just going to give us the, the starting of it and, uh, and look at the first thing that, uh, that true worship, according to the Bible, is and, and, what, it, and what it requires. But um, let's look at, at, at John chapter 4. If you would, turn to John chapter 4. If you haven't already gone there, I know it's on the, on the screen there. John chapter 4 seems like a kind of an odd verse to present as, uh, as the verse dealing with worship. But it, now that we know that in John chapter 4, we're talking about uh, the woman at the well. Very familiar passage, very, uh, if you want to say, popular passage. But the woman at the well, as, as you go through the process, now I'm, I'm actually going to skip. I'm not going to start off in verse number, number 7 for sake of time. We're going to get down a little bit further to, to the actual area we want to focus in on. But just to kind of preface the, the setting here before we read Scripture, you have the woman at the well that, by the way, Christ on purpose went. He knew that he had a, uh, an ordained meeting. He had a set meeting that he was supposed to, to, to have and take place with an individual at the well. And uh, the disciples had no clue, but Jesus knew what he was doing. Uh, and again, had he revealed what he was going to do, they probably would have fought against it. You say, well, why would they do that? Simple. She was a Samaritan. And even she relays the, the, the process of thinking of that day in that, you know, why would a Jew speak to a Samaritan? Why are you speaking to me? Why are you conversing with me? You don't associate with my type. And vice versa. And so that would have been, that would have been the disciples' same mentality had Jesus said, we're going to uh, the well of Samaria so I can meet with a Samaritan woman. <gasps> you know, that would have been a, a shock kind of setting for the disciples. Jesus didn't tell them what it was he was going to do. He just let them know, I must needs go that direction. And so they went, stopped at the well. And, of course, they, the disciples went to go find food, Jesus there, and the woman uh, comes to the well, a Samaritan woman, and the discourse takes place. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, you see many other things uh, that go on. But in that discourse, in that conversation that they have, um, I'm going to go, go to verse number 19. Verse number 19, after Jesus has declared uh, to her that... Um, that she has had five husbands and the, and the one that she's living with is not her husband. Uh, she kind of gets shocked for a minute, but here's, here's her declaration, verse number 19, and we'll read down to verse number 24. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. No, duh. I mean, he just gave her her entire basic, in her mind, her entire life story, uh, and nobody warned him about it all. He just perceived and told her and she said hey I, I perceive you're a prophet kind of obvious that he's more than the the average man verse number 20 our fathers this is a samaritan woman our fathers worshiped in this mountain and ye say that 
in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now here's what Jesus answers. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Ye know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now he's not saying it's just for the Jews. He's talking about, he's getting ready to point out, he's trying to point out who he is. He is from the Jewish lineage, from the Jewish people comes the, not just Jewish Messiah, but ultimately the Messiah of all mankind, the hope of all mankind. And, and she, he's saying, hey, you don't even know really what you worship. Now, you're fairly aware of what the Jews worship, but salvation comes from and is of the Jews. Verse number 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, she was focused on a place of worship. He's focused on a heart of worship. She's focused on an area of where's the right place, where we worship in the mountains over here or where the Jews say it has to happen. And Jesus says, no, there's coming a time when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And verse number 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there are some very specific truths that we see right here, some very specific things concerning worship, and there'll be others that we will look at in other passages of scriptures as well as we go through this. But uh, let me pray, and then we're going to get our introduction going and out of the way for this, and hopefully get our first point in as well this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity back in your house. And uh, Lord, we need your help tonight to, to not see opinion, to not see... Lord, uh, just one desire or, or another, but Lord, for us to truly see and understand scriptural setting of real, genuine worship and not what's designed in, in the popular mentality of the day or in the popular mentality of the past, but to understand straight from scripture what it is to truly worship our Lord and Savior. And Lord, through that, learn as your people and have a heart from your people, Lord, that would draw us to see the work grow because we truly are focused on a proper and a desire for real, genuine worship of our Heavenly Father that you receive all the honor and glory of everything that's accomplished and done that you can put your hand of blessing on this church, Lord, because we are focused at making sure you receive all the glory through it all. And I pray that you'd help us tonight, teach us what we need to know, and help us as we start into this thought this evening. And we'll give you the glory for all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in the, the, the sermon here, or should say the, 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 the picture that's given through the life of the Samaritan woman, Christ Jesus does give us a very good lesson about salvation. It's a beautiful picture of salvation, even to those that seem unworthy, those that seem, uh, put it this way, the unwanted, the outcast, the rejects of society. That was the Samaritans. And, uh, and so it shows us a very beautiful picture of how Christ 
Um, Christ was here not to just reach out to the worthy ones. Matter of fact, there's not a single one of us that's worthy of forgiveness. Uh, But he came to reach those in need, and we are a very needy people. But he also teaches uh, in this passage of Scripture and gives us a definitive uh, answer to what worship really is. Uh, We must understand that God does not change and neither does his definitions of what, what he designed and what he designed them for in the Bible. What he lays out has not changed. It's always stayed the same. Now, you've probably heard, and I know I have, and, uh, and my dad has heard, my brother when he was preaching has heard, uh, many things such as this statement. Well, it's, it's not our worship that has changed. It's just the way that we worship that has changed. Just be careful. Sometimes you have to realize that if it's change, and again, I'm, I know this is going to be a very touchy subject because people, um, people get, can get very easily offended about these type of situations, the, these issues. Oh, by the way, let me just say it this way, just up front. I'm not saying anybody in here, just up front, understand, if you ever talk to anybody uh, and, and there's an instant... Um, it looks like you put a burr in the saddle and the horse starts bucking, all right? When there's an instant jerk and, and, and defense and lashing out because of a topic, and especially if you're trying to be as an appropriate and thoughtful and kind, but you're just talking about a topic and you're saying, well, the Bible says this and lays, if you do that and there's an instant offense that goes up, it might be a good sign that... Um, emotions rule the thinking and not principles. And if you live by emotions, it often uh, can be spurred to explode very easily. We have to be very careful with that. But oftentimes when somebody says, well, it's just, it's, we, we haven't changed our worship, we just changed our style of worship. Oftentimes if you've changed what God designed, it's no longer what God designed. All right, we're going to understand more as we go along, so don't, don't cut me off. I want, you to, I want you to hear me out with what I'm saying. Worship doesn't change. True, genuine, biblical, God-defined worship doesn't change with the time or culture. There's a lot of places, uh, even missionaries. Here's one of the biggest struggles for missionaries going into a foreign field, especially, uh, let, let's just give, and again, this is not to pick out one country, but uh, let's just give a good example, easy example, Africa, okay? Now, Africa is a continent, and there are multiple countries in Africa, but Africa is one of the best known settings, and uh, many island-type nations as well, but, but Africa especially, with all of its cultures and all of its different countries, um, you, you often think of missionaries like, like David Brainerd and missionaries like David, uh, uh, David Livingston and, and, and so many different ones that, that reached out to unreached people. They went into areas where no individual, especially a white man, had never been before. And there was, an, I mean, a totally separate, a totally different culture in, in the tribes and in the people who had never been reached with the gospel before. And there have been many people over time that have told missionaries or or even people in countries that have told missionaries, 
you know, that Bible stuff is good, but don't try to change our culture. You change our culture, you change who we are. Now, there is a small part of that that is true. However, here's the thing. There are some things that missionaries tend to do when they come from America and they go to a foreign field. There are some things missionaries tend to do that have to do more with American culture being influenced into another country. For example, ties, dress shirts, suits. I believe in dressing my best and and, and looking the way I ought to look as a, a preacher of the gospel, and I believe this is the best that I can give the Lord, even if what he has to work with isn't the best, all right? So, this is the best I can give. I'm gonna dress nice when I stand up, and I'm gonna preach to the best of my ability. But one thing I learned, I spent six and a half months over in the Philippines. In the Philippines, you can wear a suit and tie and all that kind of stuff and sweat until you lose poundage, okay? But beyond just the sweating, one thing I learned is in that culture, there are only so many people who can afford such what they consider luxury clothing. And to dress in this manner all the time is to dress above, so far above the normal person in the Philippines that it becomes very difficult to reach them because in their culture, the elites don't mix with the underprivileged. The elites don't talk to and don't help and don't communicate with. And so it's a natural byproduct that the people that cannot afford the nice clothes, when they see a missionary dressed all super, super nice in what they could never afford or, or have themselves, they automatically just kind of stay away from them because they're not going to want to talk to me. That's how it works here. Well, I, I learned very quickly that... Um, you know, it's not a sin for a preacher to preach in what they consider to be their best. They have what is called barongs. A barong is, now get this, oh, oh my goodness, untucked shirt, okay? Now here, here in America, the untucked shirt, in my opinion, the untucked shirt of preachers preaching in the pulpits is more of a fad than it is anything else. It is a style. The jeans, the untucked shirt, the, the, you know, the name brand tennis shoes, and certain little belts or whatever, all the little blingy bling all over it. Okay, all that kind of stuff is a fad. It's a style. It has nothing to do with, uh, and preacher, you're picking on people. No, I'm just, I'm just being blunt with you and honest. It has nothing to do with giving their best to God. It has to do with looking like everybody else looks and looking like what's popular. Now Watch. In the Philippines, I learned it's not a sin to not have a tie on. Matter of fact, they have dress clothes. They have their Sunday best they consider to be a very good appearance for a child of God, for a Christian, especially for a preacher. And they have different style barong shirts that to us would be like casual wear. But to them, that is sharp. That is giving God your best. And I learned, hey, guess what? There is nothing wrong with a preacher dressing like a preacher in that culture that would keep the people looking and listening and connected with the missionary. Not a problem. 
Now, they go start wearing shorts and everything, you know, trying to preach and, and look like they're on the beach. I, there's a little bit of a problem there. Um, you might need to dress up a little bit further. Uh, there's always a better thing to, to have your standard high than to have it low. Now, you say, preacher, what are you getting all this for? Well, because I want you to understand, there are some things in culture that are not, a, that, that are not against and, and are not necessarily a biblical principle problem. But there are some things in cultures that go against God word, God's word, and when it goes against God's word, culture or no culture, it needs to change. I mean, the, the culture of, of uh, uh, the different uh, tribes in Africa, many of them don't wear any clothing, at least in their old culture. But when they become, many of them were reached with the gospel, they began to realize as they were taught and learned in the word of God, hey, God clothed Adam and Eve. I think we need to put some clothes on. It was a cultural thing, but that was something the culture needed to adjust to fit the word of God. The culture needed to change. So not everything in culture is bad. Not everything in culture is against the word of God, but also culture cannot dictate the word of God. That's the importance of it. Our culture in life can change. Uh, America, can you not, can you not see and, and look back at the history? Has America's culture changed over time? Man's culture and man's acceptable setting uh, when it comes to that which is sacred or, or that which is appropriate or that which is proper changes. As man degrades in his mindset, so does his idea of what is proper. There has to be something that sets the standard, that sets the we do not pass line. There has to be a foundational point at which you do not cross. You do not go past. There's got to be something to, hey, we have an anchor. There's got to be something we stay anchored to. Man, in our natural depravity, will always tend to degrade, 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 unless there's something helping us toe the line of what is right versus what is wrong. So, though culture doesn't always present bad things, we have to be careful to understand that culture cannot dictate biblical principle. Biblical principles must always oversee proper culture. Let's put it that way. So, I will, I will say it this way when it comes to worship. The culture of the day, the acceptable mentalities of the day, uh, the way in which things are done of the day must be compared to and must be put in reference to the word of God to see if the principled culture of the day max, matches up to the principle that doesn't change from the Bible. Improper worship provides a poor substitute for God's true working in hearts. And we'll get into more of that later as to how emotionalism uh, takes away the work that God can do in the heart because we're moved by emotion and God's not able to really do the work that permanently fixes the heart issues. Just as this woman in verse, uh, verse 19 through 20 and what was presented here, many people use their improper worship as a substitute for dealing with the real issues and sins in life. As long as I feel like I worshiped God, as long as I feel like I had a good morning or good Sunday service, or can I put it this way? 
the biggest danger in America is as long as I feel good enough about the worship hour I was a part of that I can ease my conscience a little bit longer, I can go on the next day. There are many people, and I'm not, again, not pointing fingers, this is just truth. If you watch, there are many people, and sometimes we might even be guilty of it, that tend to let the house of God and the preaching time and the time where we should be truly focused on who matters, and we allow that, uh, that time, when we choose to be a part of it, to simply be an easing of the conscience so we don't feel guilty about what we've missed or the lack of faithfulness. That's a danger for many people, especially in America. However, the Bible tells us that until this woman dealt with the sin problem, that, uh, that she could not and we cannot truly worship the Lord. Uh, Psalm 66, verse number 8 says this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, you can take and say, well, that's dealing with prayer. Uh, that's dealing with our time with the Lord, period. Do you know what worship is? Worship is not our time around God's people just raising our hands. That's not worship. Worship is a private Worship is a personal thing. It's personal time spent with God. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, if there's sin in my life, there can be no proper fellowship. So how can there be true worship if I'm not right with the Lord? See, there are things, there are principles that are laid out in God's word that hinder true worship if we're not careful. Now, these principles given to us in this passage are not the basic guidelines to worshiping God. They are God's mandated requirements. In this passage, anything short of God's design is just a poor knockoff of what God intended. So let me give you the first one. I got to quit, all right? First one, it'll be 7 o'clock on the dot. I got four minutes by my, my clock here, and I set it fast. Well, it's by one minute. Okay. True worship, true worship is properly focused. True worship is properly focused. The key is worship, uh, looking, uh, look at um, verse number 24. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. True worship is properly focused. Too often, we focus on the elements of worship other than the person of worship. We focus on the atmosphere of worship other than the person of worship. True worship is properly focused. Isaiah 42, verse number eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Hmm. There's many other verses we could go to where the Lord declares that he is the one who receives glory and honor. And he will not. We say our God is a jealous God. I know one person, I believe it was, uh, it was Oprah Winfrey. Um, that uh, in her early days, by the way, you know, in her early days, she went to church. In her early days, I believe she went to a Baptist church. And she heard a, heard a preaching. Now, here's the danger of, of hearing something and not understanding it and not sticking around long enough to learn it. 
She heard the statement that God is a jealous God. And in her heart, she said, not the God I serve. I'll never be back to these kind of churches again. She walked away and now she has become uh, a, a one that worships uh, the just about any God out there that she feels like is a good God to go after. I mean, she worships the Hindu, the Buddhas, the, all that kind of stuff. She, she's kind of an everything. If it, if it feels right, she goes for it. Um, but ultimately, and I'm not trying to tear her down, this is just by her own words, basically, she is a humanist. And she believes that, uh, that we have the ability to be our own gods, ultimately. Now, going from someone who is underneath truth to, to misunderstanding a statement. Hey, our God is a jealous God, but that doesn't mean he sins. He's jealous because he has the right to be jealous over that which belongs to him. God will not share his glory. God will not share the honor he's supposed to have. God will not allow the worship he deserves to be given to man. And I, I, I'm going to hit a little ahead of myself, just a, just a tad here, but we'll revisit it again next week. Most worship today in churches or in settings of worship, most worship is more about the people who are there to lead worship than the God who's supposed to be worshiped. Well, what group are you having? Oh, I love their worship. You're worshiping man, not God. Oh, oh, that song just moves me. Yet you're worshiping a song, ultimately, not worshiping the Lord. By the way, if it's true worship, you don't need song. You don't, you don't need a singer. You don't need music. You don't need, if it's true worship, you don't need any of that. You just need you and God. You and God. And by the way, if we came to the house of God with a heart that's already spent time with God, nobody would have to prod and push to a real, genuine sense of worship. Matter of fact, we come to the house of God on pins and needles, and the first word out of the preacher's mouth, the Lord would break our hearts, and we'd hit an altar saying, God, forgive me. And it may not even be anything the preacher said. The Lord's just doing the work in our hearts. He's, I mean, he's just working and moving and molding and he's squeezing our hearts. It might just be somebody sits there, can't sing a song, can't, can't do nothing, just sits there with tears rolling down their eyes. They spent time with the Lord and the Lord's squeezing their heart and the juice is running out up top. Nothing has to be said, nothing has to be product. True, genuine worship only needs the individual and the Father. It's all about worshiping Him, properly focused. True worship is focused on God, not on man. It does not give any praise or glory to man, therefore it cannot be showy. True worship is not a show. False and empty worship is nothing new. The same vain worship of our day was occurring right before uh, the eyes of Christ Himself. How many of the priests and, and, and of the Pharisees and Sadducees, how many of them did he look and say, hey, you whited sepulchers, 
You're right on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. What was it? They, were, they had a whole bunch of outward worship, but it was empty and vain. And he knew it. It wasn't true worship. It was man's version of worship. I'm almost done. Matthew 15, 8 through 9 says this. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Think about that. With their mouths... And honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What's the Lord teaching there? There's a whole generation, it's a whole group of people, by the way, that every generation has had, and today it is like wildfire. It's a whole group that have what is called worship, and there's a lot of lip service, and there's a lot of mouth moving, there's a lot of singing that takes place. There's a lot of speaking that takes place. But a lot of it's empty and vain because it's not real worship. It's a whole bunch of front. It's a whole bunch of show. But the Lord knows not what is seen. He knows what is unseen. He knows the heart. And may I say this, and just don't get mad at me, this is just real. In every area, and I know this, I love Southern gospel music. Not necessarily where it's headed, but I love old style Southern gospel music. But even back in the day, uh, there are groups I can name right now, because I had friends that sang in Southern gospel music and, and actually got to meet many of the people and sang with some groups and told me the stories, what happens behind the scenes with those groups that get out on the stage and they sing to the glory of God and they encourage people to serve the Lord and tears rolling down people's faces. And then once they get done, they go in the back and some of them homosexuals and some of them uh, going back and doing everything you can think of when it comes to drugs and drinking until they're drunk. And then they get all, next day, hey, they get back on the bus, go to the next place, they get out there and they sing for Jesus. And people say, boy, I tell you, we were in a worship service tonight. No, you weren't. Regard iniquity in your heart. God will not hear you. Be careful, the people. I'm not saying get, get disgruntled or, or, or get finger pointy or try to pick apart everybody's life. What I'm saying is be careful about the people we lift up and say, boy, they know how to worship. Listen, if their heart is not right with God, it's a whole bunch of what man can do, but God may not be in it. Now, does it mean that the Lord can't work in my heart regardless? I mean, listen, he can work in my heart, but that comes down to the fact of whether or not I've been spending time with him like I should. God can use, hey, 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 God used Pharaoh, God used many different men that were not godly people. But the one thing that, uh, that really upsets the Lord more than anything else is when someone claims to be godly claims to be the picture of godliness and claims to lead people in following the lord when their life is anything but godly the lord the lord hates hypocrisy as much as the next person only thing is he knows which one's a hypocrite we're just guessing <laughs> now here's here's the whole point that i'm getting to and i want you to understand the idea, and I know you, you know I'm going here, and I'm just going to hit it. I'm not pointing fingers to any of the place or whatever, but praise and worship services today 
as man has defined it, as man has put it together, as man has lifted it up, most of it praises men's talents and abilities and worships the emotions of man in the process of what they call worship of God. True worship is about God receiving everything and us receiving nothing. You say, huh? No. It, if our heart is truly about God receiving, does it mean that we, don't get, we won't get anything out of it? Oh no, we'll get a whole lot out of it. But it's about, in our hearts, God receiving everything and us receiving nothing. Because if we're looking for us to receive anything out of it, we'll eventually start taking what even belongs to God. Attention, the glory, the, all these things. It becomes about the singers. It, it becomes about the preachers. I'm Dr. So-and-so. So, 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 who cares? One preacher accurately said, if I go out after preaching the word of God and people go out saying, wow, what a man of God, I failed. But if people go out saying, wow, what a God, I've done exactly what I'm called to do. We have to be careful to not accept, and again, uh, we got more to go with it, but not accept the cultural definition of worship and look at God's word concerning how does God define true worship that he receives all the glory, where he receives what is expected and we don't look to receive anything other than knowing we've, we've done exactly as we're to do, spend time with the Father so he can do the work in the heart that he wants to do. If we want to see God's work grow, it's got to be built. We already said before it has to be built on truth. Well, here's the way we take truth and we use truth in a proper way of making sure that our worship does not end up becoming about us. It always stays about him. And that's just the starting. True worship is properly focused. And we'll look at more later. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for tonight.